Lord, we can't wait. We'll be around your throne forevermore. We can't wait to see you face to face. And Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we ask as we go to your word, Lord, again, that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Let me encourage you, pray about coming out Wednesday night. We'll be in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 more than likely, so read ahead and come be prepared to receive from the Word of the Lord. Uh, On the building situation, um, you know, we got the letter from them. Most of you know if you've been coming any length of time, we've for a couple of years now, I'm looking for a building, and every time we find one, the city tells us it's not zoned, and, and basically they've zoned us out of the city pretty much. And so uh, we don't want to strive because we trust that God is faithful and He will open the door He has for us, but in not striving, we also do feel that we need to go to the city with the federal law that says that they cannot keep a church from having a place to meet. And that's basically what they've done. And so we're having a letter drafted up by uh, the Christian attorneys who deal with this stuff all the time, and we're going to give it to the city of Santa Cruz. Sometimes Santa Cruz thinks we're our own country and we do things our own way here, but uh, aren't you glad God's greater, amen? And so the Lord's will be done, and uh, hey, we can meet in a gymnasium 10 more years if we have to. We just feel like God's got something more in store for us, so just keep it in prayer. Men's retreat, guys, I've said it, I'll say it again. You need to come. If I could have any man on this planet speak to our men, it would be Ross Rhodes. He's a gifted guy. Uh, He taught down at the pastor's conference on the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't just teach on the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm really excited that he's going to be there. There'll be about 15 Calvary chapels there. And so I would really love to see as many of our guys come as possible. It's just a couple weeks away. So please be praying about that. Don't miss out. You know, Jesus Christ took time to get away and be with the Father. How much more should we do that, amen? We need time where we just get away and we just turn off everything else and and wives, encourage your husbands to go. He'll come back a more godly man, a better husband, and a better father, amen? All right, was that exhortation enough, do you think? All right, James chapter one. Now this morning we're gonna continue to look, we started it last week, at this letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, a pillar of the faith, as Paul would later refer to him, to the first century Christian church. And as we talked about last week, the first century Christian church had been scattered because of persecution. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And even though they were scattered and they had to leave their homes, many of them in fear for their lives, what ended up happening was the gospel was then spread throughout much of the known world, certainly throughout the Roman Empire. Now, This letter is written to this largely Jewish church, encouraging them in the midst of temptation and trials to continue to stand for the Lord. And so this is being written from a heart of love. And as I said last week, we learned some things about James right off the bat, because James introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I said last week, you know, if Jesus was my half-brother, you'd probably all know it very quickly. Yeah, my brother, Jesus Christ, creator of the universe. Yeah, that's right. That's my brother, right? And you know, and kind of how most of us would respond, but we see that God had really gotten a hold of James's heart because he spoke of himself only as a bondservant. And then he went on to talk about 
how to deal with trials in our lives. And I talked last week about how every one of us here, we're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go in a trial. Amen? The Bible says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, not if. And it's those trials that God allows to come into our life to cause us to grow in our faith. So instead of murmuring about the trial, it says count it all joy. Now count it all joy doesn't mean do jumping jacks and just you know, giggle out of control because you, know, you lost your job. That's not what it's talking about. But we should respond with a calmness because we know who's in control. Amen? And we know that the Lord allowed it for a reason. So trials are things that God allows in our life. They're unavoidable. They're not consequences of sin. There are things that come into our life, circumstances God allows that he might be glorified. So we saw last week the trials of life that were coming their way. And he was encouraging them to continue to keep their eyes on God, to not be discouraged in the midst of them. My exhortation to all of you, if you're in the midst of a trial or coming out of a trial or about to go in a trial, which is all of us, then keep our eyes on the Lord. Do not be discouraged. God is faithful. Amen? Now... He then went on to say that those who lack wisdom ask of God. Guys, one of the things that we all need is wisdom. I said last week probably the number one thing people ask me to pray for is for wisdom. They may not use that word. They might say, you know, I need to make a decision about a job. I'm praying about moving. I'm praying about, I don't know how to deal with a rebellious child or a certain thing going on in your life. And really what we're asking for is wisdom. And there's a great promise in those first verses that if we ask, he will give us wisdom. So guys, we need to ask, expect, and wait, and know that God indeed will give us the wisdom we need to walk in the center of his will. So the marks of a mature Christian, part one last week, how we see ourselves and how we see Jesus. We saw the humility, the humbleness of James. We can learn from his example. How we respond to trials and then where we turn for wisdom. Now this morning we're going to continue to look at the marks of a mature Christian, part two. First thing we're going to see is how we are to view the temporary riches of this world. Most of us, if we were asked right now, truthfully, if we were to be really honest, if Almighty God showed up, and he wouldn't do this because he's not a genie in a lamp, but if he showed up and said, you know, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. Most of us, if we were honest, would ask for financial security. Lord, give me a lot of money. That's probably what we would ask for. Or am I the only one? Okay? But you know what? The truth is that the riches of this world are fading. And we're going to see how we ought to look at the things of this world and realize what's really important. Number two, how we are to respond to temptations. Last week we looked at trials. This week we're going to look at temptation. Trials are things that God allows to come into our lives, circumstances that come that God brought, in a sense, so that we might grow, that we might be a testimony, that we might impact others. But temptations do not come from God, as we will see. They come from the enemy who wants to to draw us away from the Lord. And then thirdly, If time permits, as we're moving through the chapter, we're going to see how we are to have control over our behavior when things are tough. When you are spiritually mature, it should be seen in how we respond to difficulties. Let's begin in verse 9, picking up where we left off last week. Marks of a mature Christian. How we view the temporary riches of this world. It says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. 
You know, while worldly riches tend to place value on one's life in the eyes of the world, and let's face it, the poor are often seen as less valuable in the eyes of the world than the rich. Is that true or not? They're treated, we'll see this in chapter 2, there's favoritism towards those. You'll see how people treat someone who's dressed really nice and driving a nicer car. They're, they're treated with more respect and there's different, you know, favoritism that the world plays. But in God's eyes, that stuff is irrelevant. You understand that, right? To God, the riches of this world are perishing and they are meaningless. And so he says to those who are poor, because of the difficulties of life that they were going through at the time, because of the persecution, you've got to understand something. They had to flee the city they lived in. Many of them had to leave their homes and their jobs behind, and now they're living in, you know, basically in poverty because they simply are walking with God. And then he says to them right here in this verse, he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. You know what? Let him know how precious he is in the eyes of the Lord. Let him know how God sees him not as poor, but as rich. Guys, if we have Jesus Christ, we are as rich as you can be. Amen? Jesus is all we need. And sometimes we don't realize that until Jesus is all we have. One of my favorite statements often is Jesus is enough. He's enough, isn't he? He's enough. Often in counseling, people will say, well, I need this. Wait a minute. Is Jesus enough or not? He's enough. And for these people who are in a situation of being poor, he says, let them glory in their exaltation. Glory in the fact that they are children of the king. Glory in the fact that they're going to heaven. Glory in the fact that they're new creations in Christ. Guys, the checking account is irrelevant. What matters is where we stand with the Lord. He says, let them glory in their exaltation. Now, the poor often feel lowly and less significant, and he encourages them to be blessed in their exaltation as to who they are in Christ. But then he says the opposite to the wealthy, because the wealthy can become very prideful and have a sense of entitlement. Now, this is not always true. There's some very godly, very wealthy people. I want to say this. It's not less godly to be wealthy or or more godly to be wealthy. It's not less godly to be poor, or more godly to be poor. Whatever God puts in our hands is all His anyway. Amen? What's godly is to be a good steward of whatever you have. And by the way, if you're sitting in this room, you are wealthy compared to most of the world. Amen? You got clothes, you got more clothes at home, you got food in your refrigerator, if you have a car to drive, a place to sleep, you're more wealthy than most of the world, and we are those who have a great abundance. And we need to be faithful stewards of what God has put in our hands that we might minister to those in Africa and in India. You know we support GFA heavily. So we need to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. But look what he says to the wealthy. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. You know what? The cross of Calvary is a great equalizer. It humbles the rich and exalts the poor. It brings all of us to the same place because all of us get saved the same way. Amen? We don't get saved one way if we're wealthy and another way if we're not. One way if we live in one country, another way if we don't. We all must come through Jesus Christ. The only way we can be saved is through Him. It elevates the poor to realize they are as valuable to God as anyone else. Again, the value that you, how do you determine the value of something? What someone's willing to pay. How valuable are you to God? He sent his son to suffer and die that you might have eternal life. You are so valuable to him. 
So to the poor, they recognize through the grace of God how valuable they are to Him at the same time. It takes those who may be prideful in their wealth and makes them realize that He isn't more important than anyone else. In fact, that He is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior just like anyone else. Guys, our wealth may impress the world, but it doesn't impress God. It says there, as, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. You know, a flower that's exposed to the S-U-N for a long time will wither up and die. And so exposure to the S-O-N will make a rich man come low. You know what? When we start to think a lot of ourselves, we need to look at ourselves in light of our Savior. Amen? Guys, we don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to the Lord. He's the example. And we've all fallen short of His glory. Amen? And because we look at Him as the ultimate example... We remember that God doesn't grade on the curve, but he grades at the cross. And what we've done with Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters. And so we can get very prideful, and we need not to. By the way, if you're wealthy because you have a talent, guess who gave you the talent? God did. Who should be glorified in it? He should. Amen? Nothing worse. I think there's one of the biggest things that can get our eyes off of God is being so comfortable with this world that is passing away. Some of it needs to be burnt away. Some of it needs to be removed from our lives. I call it the golden handcuffs. I've been there. Where you have so much stuff in the world that you can't leave your job because if you left your job, you couldn't pay all the debt that you have and all the houses and the stuff that you have. And you know what? We need to be living our lives here holding lightly to the things of this world. So if God told us tomorrow to move halfway around the world and preach the gospel, we could go do it. Amen? God's desire is that we would be ready to be used by Him. As every flower dies, its beauty gone forever, so too every rich man will die. His source of pride and self-worth gone forever. A mature believer recognizes that the riches of this world are only temporary and that true riches indeed are a right standing before God. All this stuff that's so important to us. You know, it's interesting. The older I get, the more I know people who die. And the more people that die, the more I see the same thing over and over and over again. I've been with people on their deathbed. I've done many funerals. And you know what? It doesn't matter how wealthy, how poor, how old they lived, how they died. It all comes down to the same thing in the end. Nobody says, I wish I'd made more money. Nobody says, I wish I'd got another promotion. I'd accumulated more things. It's always the same thing. I wish I'd done more with my family and more for the kingdom of God. Guys, if you're walking around today, God's not done with you. If you're breathing in and out, he still wants to use you. May we not live lives that we will regret later. Amen? May we live lives that will impact eternity. Because your wealth, the stuff that you have, is fading. It's perishing. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. Amen? And may we not be so caught up in attaining stuff that we miss out on ministering to people. True riches are right standing before God. The rich man is humbled when he looks at the Savior and realizes his own desperate need for salvation. He realizes that all he has will indeed fade away. And this is the sign of one who is spiritually mature. That lowly brother sees how valuable God is 
to him. He's desperate, but the rich man realizes how truly worthless his riches are apart from the Lord. Guys, everyone has the same need. You know what's interesting? Do you know the suicide rate is higher in the top 5% of incomes than in the bottom 5%? You know why that is? Because people are striving for more. They think if they have more, if they get this one thing, they'll finally have peace. And then they get it and they don't have peace. Why is it that people like you know, Elvis Presley and all these you know, actors and all these people have, seem to have the world by the tail and their lives are a disaster because, guys, there's nothing this world can do to satisfy the God-shaped vacuum that is in every single one of our lives. Guys, what we need is a head-on collision with Jesus Christ, to walk in intimate fellowship with Him, to know Him and make Him known. To realize that the things of this world are passing away and they won't matter one bit in eternity. So the marks of a mature Christian. How we view the temporary riches of this world. Number two, how we respond to temptation. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. The word blessed there means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the man or the woman who endures temptation. That word endure there is hupomone. If you remember from last week, it said back in verse uh, 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's the same word. The testing of your faith produces hupomone. It's patience in verse 3. And now here in verse 12, it's translated endurance. It's the same thing. Guys, the trials of life help produce patience and endurance in our lives to be able to withstand the temptation of the enemy. Guys, as we go through difficulty and we see God come through, now the next time a trial comes along, or when the enemy shows up and wants to tempt you, you remember the hand of God and how he mightily delivered you before. He's been faithful in the past, he's being faithful today, and he will be faithful in the future. Patience and endurance is produced through trials, and that same patience and endurance is needed to avoid temptation. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. The word temptation there speaks of being put on trial, having your integrity or your, or your virtue enticed by sin. Now, how often are we tempted? Every day, all day long. True or not? And there's an enemy that wants nothing more than to destroy you. You know what? If you're a born-again Christian, he can't keep you from heaven. But if you're a born-again Christian, what he wants to do is destroy your testimony so you can keep from impacting anybody else. He wants you to be another Christian hypocrite. Where your co-workers can say, oh, that Christian, he cheated on his wife. Oh, that Christian, look at him. He's a drunkard. Oh, that Christian, he stole money. Oh, that Christian. And the temptation is coming because he wants to destroy your testimony and harm the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the enemy wants to do. Now, he is the author of temptation. And temptation is a common, if not constant, occurrence in our life. He attempts to get us to, to succumb to the desires of the flesh. And guys, temptation can be great or small. We can be tempted with something as small as to call in sick to work when we're not sick. Ouch. Is that a sin or not? What's the answer? It is, isn't it? If you call in and say you're sick and you're not sick, you're lying. 
Lying is sin. It's a temptation. The enemy. You know what's amazing too? Is tell your kids to tell someone who calls you on the phone that you're not there. You're teaching your kids to lie. Amen? Those are, may seem like small temptations, but what we're doing is we're building up character in our children. There's a temptation to speed when we're running late. Speeding is sin. Speeding is, a, is wrong. To lie when we're confronted. To cheat when it will save us time or money. That's important to remember as you're filling out your taxes. Amen? If you don't have a receipt, don't claim it. But I'll lose money. So what? It's all God's anyway. Isn't a good name better to be had than great riches? Isn't it better that we would be a great testimony before Almighty God? Isn't it better to let the government have some extra money than to do things wrong? We need to honor the Lord. To respond in anger when we feel like we've been slighted. There's a temptation. The enemy will always come. You, you shouldn't be treated that way. Anybody ever told you that? Who does that person think they are talking to you like that? You know, and you kind of, yeah. Right? Don't we all? The enemy so wants us to blow our testimony. He will come and he will tempt us to satisfy a fleshly desire. Drugs or alcohol, intimacy outside of marriage. Everywhere we turn, we face the temptation to do the wrong thing. Temptation is something we all deal with. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, the temptations you face are the same ones that everyone else faces. And often we want to blame God for our temptation. As if God tempts us. God never tempts you. You understand that? Don't blame God when you're tempted. You know, it goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? What did, it, what did Adam do when he got busted in sin? It was the woman you gave me. Right off the bat, he's busted for sinning, and instead of confessing, what does he do? He puts two layers between him and sin. It's the woman's fault, it's God's fault, it's certainly not my fault. When confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent. Amen? And when temptation comes, the enemy wants, to make us, wants us to blow our testimony. He wants to break our fellowship with Almighty God. And you know what? Praise God for the promise in 1 Corinthians 10. It goes on to say, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide that way of escape that you may be able to hupomone, to endure it. With every temptation, God provides a way of escape, and it's up to us to take it. The Bible says if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How many of you have been tempted to sin, and you knew that God was opening up a huge door for you to step through and not have to go into that sin? Anybody? You're not paying attention if you haven't noticed, amen? Now here's the thing. Isn't it amazing how we'll rock right by the opening, and sometimes we'll, op- we'll put another opening, and we'll keep walking by that one? Because you know what happens? When we're walking in the flesh, we succumb to the flesh. But if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Bible says. You know, I think of the difference of how we respond. I think often starts off with how we start our day. You know, if you begin your day in the presence of Almighty God, it's going to be amazing how different you are at work. If you start your day, get up a little early and open up the Word of God and spend time with Him. Spend time in prayer. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your boss. It'll be amazing how when you get to work, you see them in a whole different light. You see it as an opportunity for you to go and be salt and light. Now, 
with temptation, with trials, also comes an opportunity for the enemy to tempt you. Maybe you're driving to work, you get up in the morning, you don't have time for your, to be in the Word. Guys, when we don't have time, we choose not to have time. We choose not to have time to be in the Word. We get in our car, we start driving to work, we haven't spent any time with the Lord. We're running late, so we're kind of speeding, breaking the law, right? Sinning against Almighty God, we succumb to that temptation. We're blasting along, we're getting mad at the people in front of us. We stop at a light, somebody rear-ends our car. Now that's a trial, Right? That's a trial. Now, in the midst of the trial, God can be glorified, but you know what happens in the midst of the trial? The enemy tempts you. You get out of your car, you know, you're sitting there, the, you know, the the bag has exploded in your face. Now you're really late for work. You get out of your car, and the enemy is going, What an idiot that guy is running into the back of your car. Now, this could be that God, before the foundation of the world, I shouldn't say could be, absolutely was God's plan. That this accident was going to happen, and here's your chance to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. Or you could get out and blow a head gasket and have the guy look up and see all the Christian stickers on the back of your car that he just rear-ended, and you can be yet another hypocrite. Guys, in the midst of the trials come temptations. The enemy wants to use the trials to make you think God doesn't care, to make, cause you to blow your testimony. Guys... When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And we have those divine appointments every day. Because look what it says here. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. What does that mean? When he has passed the test. When he's taken the way of escape. When he's responded in the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, what about the times when God has opened the door and you've taken it? You guys know what that's like? He opens the door and you've taken it. And... How blessed are you when you've done that? Aren't you blessed? Afterward you go, thank you, Lord. I was so close to doing something I shouldn't have. You made a way of escape. And thank you, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you enabled me to take it. Thank you, Lord. I'm amazed at the lengths God will go to because of his love for us. I remember calling a guy one time. A guy I hadn't talked to in three years. I called him. I didn't even know how I had his cell phone. I called him on his cell phone, and he was literally moments away from committing adultery. He was in a hotel room, in the bathroom, changing his cell phone rings, and it's his old pastor. And he was like, you've got to be kidding me. How in the world did you get this phone number? I'm like, you know, Lord, just put you on my heart. And he was just like, oh, and then he told me, uh, you have no idea where I am and what I'm about to do. I'm like, dude, it's not too late. Get out of there. And he left. But you know what? God will do that, won't he? He'll make the way of escape for us because he loves us. He's not a no-fun bummer God trying to keep you from fun. He's your loving heavenly father who wants to keep you from harm. And he'll open that door wide and say, come this way. Don't fall into the enemy's trap. And when you've been, now watch this though. This is what's amazing about our God. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, wait a minute. So I'm tempted to sin. God empowers me with his Holy Spirit and makes the way for me to escape. And if I simply obey him and escape, he then gives me a reward as he's helped deliver me from what my flesh wants to do. That's the God we serve. He dies on the cross, he gives us rewards. He pays the price, he blesses us. Our God is such an awesome God. Now, what is this crown of life? It's a reward for remaining faithful in the face of temptation. 
He makes the way, but then he rewards us for taking it. You know what? There's a bema seat judgment in heaven. There's a great white throne judgment for those who will be separated from Almighty God for all eternity. By the way, there's a big thing going around in the church today that there is no literal hell. Yes, there is a literal hell. And that's another one of the enemy's tools to try to get us to be less concerned about people who don't know God. Every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? And we should not take it lightly. I told you last week that a guy that sat across from me at work, 46 years old, went into the hospital with pneumonia and died. Just a week and a half ago. And I had been talking to him about the Lord. But he never received the Lord. And I'll tell you, my heart breaks and it puts a sense of urgency in my heart every time I talk to somebody about the Lord. Hell is a real place. There is a judgment coming when all will stand before him. But guys, the judgment that we will face will not be the great white throne judgment because we're going to heaven, but there's a bema seat judgment where God will actually give us rewards. And this crown of life is one of them. Where we stand in faithful obedience as he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, helps us to do, and then he blesses us. Most believe, myself included, that we will take those crowns and throw them right back at his feet where they belong. Because he's worthy, amen? But if he's giving out crowns, we should desire them. Not because we want to be glorified, but we want to be faithful to what God has called us to do. It says there, he will give you the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Note the connection between obedience and love. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you love me, the Lord said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Guys, the highest form of worship is obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. More important to God than religion is a love relationship. Amen? You can come to church and do all the rituals under the sun, but if you don't have intimate fellowship with Him, He doesn't want rules and rituals. He wants your heart. And your heart is reflected in you walking in obedience to Him. There's a clear connection between obedience and love, as it is indeed the highest form of worship. Obedience is surrendering my will to his. And then it says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now again, let no one say when he is tempted. Again, it's not if he is tempted. It's when he is tempted. We're all being tempted. We're being tempted every single day. And in the midst of temptation, we have a couple of choices to make. In the midst of temptation, we can obey God. We can flee or we can blame it on the Lord, much like Adam did. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God doesn't tempt you. He's the one that makes the way of escape in the midst of temptation. Only the enemy tempts you to do evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. Have you ever thought about that? He can't even be tempted by evil. Why? Because he's perfect, holy God. And you know what? It doesn't, evil, evil is so contrary to his nature, they can't even tempt him with it. It's no temptation to him. People have said that to me. What if God fell? God can't fall. He's God. Amen? God can't learn anything because he knows everything. God can't change because if he changed, that would mean he wasn't perfect before he changed and he had made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? 
And so God is above temptation. He's perfect, holy God. It's contrary to his nature. And you know what? Because he's above temptation, neither does he tempt us. But he's the one who makes the way of escape in the midst of temptation. God doesn't tempt us to evil. He instead delivers us from it. Even in the midst of the smallest temptation, he is there, reaching out to us, making a way of escape. But sadly, instead of running to God, we're, we're prone to blame him when we are tempted. Again, as Adam did, blaming his wife and blaming God. But on the contrary, look what it says in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Temptation doesn't come from God. Temptation, in and of itself, isn't even sin. Do you know that? Being tempted is not sin. Do you understand that? Temptation is not sin. It's giving in to temptation that is sin. Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? Out, he took him out into the wilderness, tried to tempt him after he hadn't eaten in 40 days. How did he respond to temptation, by the way? It is written with the word of God every single time. The word of God says, the word of God says, the word of God says. You and I should learn from that. Next time you're tempted by the enemy, respond with the word of God. And that's what our Lord did. He responded with the word. But notice that when we are tempted, when we are drawn away, the word drawn away there is a word that is used for luring an animal into a trap. Satan loves to do that. He loves to set a trap that will entice you. And the word drawn away and enticed, the word enticed there means to coax, coax, excuse me, or to bait. Put something that, you know, we can't pass by. Now, does Satan know everything? What's the answer? Can he be everywhere at once? What's the answer? No, he's not the opposite of God. People try to make him the opposite of God. He's toast compared to God, amen? He's not the opposite of God. He's not near God. He's not close to God. He's not kind of like God. None of it. If he was the opposite of somebody, maybe Gabriel the archangel, because he was an angel as well. But he can't be everywhere at once. But here's what he does know. He is intelligent, and he does know what men fall for. Why? Because he's been around men for thousands of years, and he's seen what works on us. And he keeps doing it. And so he baits the hook, he drops it out in front of us, and for the hook to be hanging there is not sin. When it becomes sin is when we bite. It becomes sin when we reach out and taste of that thing that we are not supposed to touch. You know, the Bible says the lips of an adulterous woman drip with honey, but the path to her house leads to hell. You know what? Sin always promises pleasure, but instead it delivers heartache. It promises joy, and it delivers a broken heart. It delivers a destroyed family. And in the end, if we continue on in it, it brings about death. Because look what it says, and I want you to notice something. We're tempted and we're drawn away by our own desires. Guys, we want to blame Satan for everything. By the way, devil can't make you do anything, amen? When do we fall into sin? We don't really fall, we jump. When we see something, we choose to do it, our own desires, and we just say, I'm doing it, I don't care, I want it. I'm more concerned about the immediate gratification than the long-term consequences of my sin, and I'm just going to do it. Now, how do you know that you're saved? Is after you do it, you feel convicted. Amen? I believe this. As you mature in your faith, the time between when you sin and when you're convicted will grow shorter and shorter. 
It'll go from weeks to days to hours to minutes to seconds to nanoseconds, right? Sometimes the word's not out of my mouth, I'm already convicted. How about you? Anybody ever felt like that before? And that's a sign that we're growing in our faith, that we just, we're grieved by sin, yet we still have this daily battle. Paul said, you know, I know to do right, but yet, you know, I don't do it. It's a battle we all struggle with as we walk around in the flesh. That's why we must walk in the Spirit, so we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it's our own desires, and we give into our own will and our own ways. We can't blame it on Satan. We can't blame it on anyone. It's just plain stinking us. Amen? It's just plain us. Verse 15. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The word conceived there, it's the word that takes two parts. You know, for a, a woman to have a baby... There has to be an egg and it has to be fertilized. Both of those things have to happen before conception can take place. The same is true of sin. There's temptation and then us, our will, responding to that temptation. That's how sin is birthed. Temptation is there and then we respond. The temptation itself is not sin. But it's responding with our will to the temptation and that's where that word conceived comes from. When desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death again temptation alone is not sin so you and i have a choice we can resist resist temptation or we can embrace it there are two men in the bible both mighty men of god that both had the same exact temptation and they responded differently joseph most of you know the story of joseph joseph speaking of trials was thrown into a pit by his brothers. They were going to leave him for dead. Instead, they sold him into slavery. He went, and he was such a good slave that he was elevated as a slave to running Potiphar's house. Joseph, no doubt, was a good-looking young man. He wasn't married. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a position. He didn't have any wealth. And here, Potiphar's wife, when Potiphar's away on business, grabs a hold of Joseph and says, Come and lie with me. Now, the Bible doesn't describe Potiphar's wife as being pretty, but I know she was. And how do I know? Because he ran. If she had been ugly, he would have snatched the coat out of her hand and stood there. But she wasn't. He left his coat behind and he fled. The Bible says to flee youthful lust, amen? To run away from it. Not see how close we can be to it. That was Joseph's response. But there was another young man by the name of David. The king of Israel. David, a man after God's own heart. The man who had already slain Goliath. The man who had already battled and won battles with the Philistines. The man who had already wandered, being chased by Saul, but remained faithful. And now David gets kind of lazy. What happens is instead of being out in the battle, he decides to stay back and he's taking a nap. We know because he wakes up in the afternoon. Everyone else is out fighting the battle. David already has multiple wives. That's a problem. But David goes out on the rooftop. He looks down and he sees Bathsheba bathing. He was in a place where he shouldn't have been looking at a woman he shouldn't have looked at. And it all happened because he was being lazy. And you know what happened? He took her. He ended up killing, having her husband put to death so he could take her as wife and take some time and read through the scripture and see all the consequences that came. Guys, here's two godly men in very similar circumstances and one bit 
on the temptation and one did not. Joseph became the prince of Egypt. David and his consequences of his sin went on for generations into his children. Guys, when we're confronted with sin, we can do one of two things. We can fall into it. We can, we can reach out and grab a hold of it. Or, like Joseph, we can flee from it. We can resist the temptation. What happened to Joseph? The temptation came, but it was never joined to his will. He kept his will separate from the temptation. So was never able to come together and conceive and be birthed into sin. Temptation plus will gives birth to sin. Sin brings forth death, it says. You know, it's interesting. When did everything start to die? In the Garden of Eden, nothing died. No plants, no animals, nothing. Everything would have lived forever. And you know what happened? Sin brought about death. And sin still brings about death. Sin promises pleasure, produces death. We must not fall for the lies of sin. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James is burdened for these precious brothers that they not be deceived by the ultimate effects of sin. The Bible says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. He's telling these guys who are on the run, who are facing persecution, not to fall into the trap of sin, not to become bitter, not to accuse God of tempting them, but instead to hold on to the Lord in the midst of it. Verse 17. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In direct contrast to the heavy consequences of sin, sin brings forth death, but every good and perfect gift comes from above. You know what? God is good all the time. Amen? He never stops being good. He's always good. And what he wants to give you is always what's best. And he loves you enough to discipline you if necessary so that you will not continue on in that which will bring you the ultimate harm. Those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. I'm glad he loves me enough to discipline me. How about you? Amen? Now when we're getting the swat, we don't like it. But you know what? What kind of loving dad would he be if he just let me continue on in harm? And didn't do anything to bring me back where I needed to be. He's a loving God. He's good all the time. Notice, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So every good thing on this planet originates from Almighty God. Amen? Apart from Him, there is nothing good. Apart from Him, there is nothing intelligent, nothing wise. Nothing good. And yet, we try to find something good from a world that promises pleasure and produces death. Guys, God sent his son to deliver us from death. He does only good and he does it all the time. He says, comes down, this good comes down from the father of lights. The creator of the sun and the moon and the stars. This speaks of his greatness, his power, his authority. Again, who's he talking to? He's talking to guys who are in the midst of difficulty, who are being tempted to just walk away from the Lord. And he's saying, look, he's the one that brings every good thing. 
He's the one that delivers you in the midst of trials and temptation. He's the one you should run to, not run from. He's great. He's holy. He's perfect. He's always good. And it says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Our God is all-powerful and unchanging. And James encourages these Christians who are facing these trials, he reminds them of the greatness and the faithfulness of God. The Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? Guys, when I think about the building situation and the thousands of dollars we spent on architects and all the things we've done and seemingly how close we were and in the middle of all that, someone sent us a letter and says, oh, sorry, it wasn't in our overlay, you can't move in. You know what? God is greater. And if God doesn't want us there, I don't want to be there. But isn't there a peace in the midst of all that? Now, I have to confess to you, when I first read the letter, there was a little part of me that got in my flesh. I'm just being transparent as I can be. Temptation came, right? Now, my will could be joined to it. it was, you know what I mean? I want to call the guy, you know what? Man, you know, because Santa Cruz, let's face it. City government of Santa Cruz, that's all I got to say. But here's the point. Does Jesus love those people? And could it even be that we're going to go through all of this just for an opportunity to minister to that man who shut us down? God, if that's what you want, then let's do that. Amen? And so instead of looking at every trial and temptation as a disaster and questioning or doubting God, we need to learn to trust in His sovereignty and realize that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Whom shall we fear? What should we be worried about? God's faithful. Amen? And this is the heart that He's exhorting these people who are going through difficulty with. James is writing them, I know it's tough, but God is good. I know you're going through a difficult time right now. God is faithful. I know there's trials and temptations, but you know what? The Lord will make the way of escape. His hand will be upon you. He loves you. Sin produces death. God gives us life. Satan tempts. God blesses us. He, he doesn't draw us away, but he pours out his love upon us. Such a great... And, I mean, can you imagine life without him? Sometimes I try to think about that. What would my life be like if I were not a child of the king. If he had not adopted me into his family, man, I don't even want to think about it. What a disaster. Because I know the struggles I have, being filled with the Holy Spirit, I can't imagine the man I would be if I was left completely unto myself. None of you would want anything to do with me, I promise. What a disaster. And I think, and I look around, you know what it does? I start looking at the people I work with and start to realize that's who they are. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't know the love of God. They've never experienced His grace. Lord, help me to be a tool in your hand to minister the love and the truth of your gospel to them. We shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? And look what it says here. With him there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. How did he bring us forth? What did he bring us forth with? The word. What's the theme verse of Calvary Santa Cruz? Faith comes by hearing and? Hearing by the word of God. What is it that transforms our lives? It's the word of God. 
and he begat us through his word. And this verse says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And I love the word there is truth, because who's the word? Jesus Christ. And who's the truth? Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And he is the one who brings us into fellowship with him through his Son. And you know what? That we might be first fruits of the, cre- of the creatures. Now he's speaking here to those who are first century Christians. And they were the first fruits. They were those who would be the first of many generations of those who would walk with Almighty God. You know, what a blessing that God would count us as fruit. Sometimes I feel like a rotten apple. I don't know about you. But God counts us as fruit of his ministry. You are his treasured possession. You're that pearl of great price. You really are. He loves you. And notice the last two verses here. So here we are in the midst of all of this. You know, how do we, we look at how we are to view riches? How are we to respond to temptation and, and endure it? But notice here in these last two verses some very clear instructions for us that if we would heed these two verses, we'd do a lot better with temptation. And we'd do a lot better in representing the Lord to a lost and a dying world. Look what it says in verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James' words of encouragement to these believers who are undergoing incredible persecution, is don't forget that God's good. Don't forget that what's happening to you will all work out for for good ultimately. So therefore, don't be quick to complain. Instead, stop speaking, start listening, and you'll hear God's voice in your trial. You know what? We are so quick to jump in and open our mouths. Am I the only one who does that? We just want to, you know, I'm going to go fix it. You got that letter from the city. Really? wonder what his hours are. He might be in You know what I mean? And you want to just go down and have a little confrontation. That's our flesh, isn't it? The Bible says we're to be slow to speak. Next time you want to speak, count to five. Slow it might be, count to a hundred. But you know what? Let's start with five. Let's be slow to speak. Let's be swift to hear. You know what happens? You know the reason that we are such poor testimony sometimes? Is we are so self-centered, we're only thinking of us, and we're only worried about what's happening to us, instead of seeing the opportunity that we have in the midst of it to minister to others. We need to quit being self-centered and be other-centered, amen? Joy, right? Jesus, others, yourself. Jesus first, others second, yourself last, you'll have joy. Most of us have yoj, right? We put ourselves first. And we wonder why we struggle. We need to be swift to hear. When we hear, that means we shut up and we listen to someone else. Makes us other-centered, doesn't it? And then slow to speak. Don't say anything. Listen. Wait. And that's when God will use us the most, is when we are being led by the Spirit, not lashing out quickly. And then he says, slow to wrath. Guys, nothing ever good comes from wrath. Do you understand that? You can be 100% right, but if you're blowing a head gasket over it, it's a bad testimony, amen? We're to respond. We don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. It's not only what we say, it's the godly heart with which we say it. And the last verse says, For the wrath of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. You know what? If you underline Bible verses in your Bible, 19 and 20 would be good. Because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sometimes we, are, we feel like we're being uh, you know, justified in our anger. It's righteous indignation. That's what I've got. I'm righteously angry. Well, wait a minute. There might be a reason to be righteously angry, but there's never a reason to respond with wrath. Amen? We should respond with kindness and love and grace and mercy. Guys, it's not always what we say, but how we say it. And people ought to see Jesus in us. When you blow your top, you blow your witness. James doesn't just tell them, you know, to knock it off, but he gives them the recipe for that godly response. And as we've seen, it's instead of blowing up, take time to listen. Be slow to speak. Don't be quick to respond. Wait upon the Holy Spirit's leading. Stop speaking. Start listening. You'll hear God's voice. Rather than complain, trust God. Nothing good happens. Our testimony is blown when we respond out of control. When we're not being led by the Holy Spirit. When we angrily attempt to take things into our own hands. Guys, God knows what you're going through right now. Do you know that? He knew before you got there. Did you know that? He knew it was coming. He's faithful. He sees it. He loves you. Let him defend you. He'll do a way better job than you will. Amen? Don't even, you know, sometimes I think it's best if we don't even try to represent. Just, all right, Lord, we're going to put it in your hands. We're just going to trust you. And you know what happens when you do that? Then God gets all the glory when it gets turned around. Amen? It wasn't some quick thing you said. It wasn't your eloquent speech. It wasn't your great tactics of arguing. It was you getting on your knees, putting it in God's hands, and then God is glorified when it all turns around. So, marks of a mature Christian. First, how we view the temporary riches of this world. See them as not being what's really important, but the riches that we have in heaven. Number two, how we respond to temptation. Take that way of escape. Don't meditate on it. Don't entertain it. Flee from it. And then lastly, how well we are able to control our behavior when things are tough. The way we, only way we can do that is if we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if we're walking in the Spirit, we will be swift to hear, we'll be slow to speak, and we'll be slow to wrath. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the trials and temptations of life, that we are never alone. And Lord, I just pray that we would truly put you on the throne of our lives. Lord, allow you to be the one that fights our battles, that leads the way. Help us, Lord, in the midst of temptation to flee youthful lust. Lord, to not entertain it, but to run from it. Lord, to recognize the way of escape. And Lord, to take it. Help us, Lord, in those fiery moments when our temperature's rising, Lord, to remember the words to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. Lord, to wait upon you, to rest in you, to not open our mouths until we've heard from you. Lord, I pray and ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would help us as a church body to be salt and light to this county. Father, in the way we respond to everything, even being shut down yet again on another facility, Lord, I just thank you that you're in control. I thank you, Lord, we don't have to stress or worry or be anxious because, God, you knew this was coming. Father, I know there's people in this room going through much greater difficulties than that. I know there's people here who have 
terminal illnesses. I know there are people here whose marriages are falling apart. There are people here, Lord, who have children in total rebellion and they don't know what to do. And Father, in the midst of all these circumstances, we confess that you are in control, you are faithful, and you are good. And we trust you. And we pray that even through the most difficult of circumstances, that you would be glorified. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you, Lord, that you're with us every step of the way, that you love us so much. May you be glorified in our lives. And Lord, I pray that when we open our mouths to speak to a lost and dying world, that Lord, your words of love and grace and mercy would flow out. And that the world around us would want to know what's happened to us and that you would be glorified. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.